the blanks and I'll just sit there and take it all in. Uh, we begin a new series this morning, and again, I will admit this is a little bit out of my comfort zone, as again, it's more of what I would term theological preaching than straightforward exposition of a single text. We will come back to that. If for no other reasons, I don't need this much stress. Um, this feels like a lot more work overall, truthfully, than just sitting down and studying a text and deriving from that. But there is a place, I believe, for the doing of what we would call biblical theology and even systematic theology. That is, how do all these things work together? How do we take what is taught in the Psalms and in Isaiah and in the New Testament, in the Gospels and the letters? Is there a unified message? And we would contend very much so there is. There is both a unity and a diversity within the text of Scripture. And we must always see those two things. And so this morning, let us consider or begin to consider what it means to know God. What it means to understand who God is. To consider what has been called the attributes of God. That is, what is God actually like? And so we'll begin that by reading from three separate texts. Two from the book of Jeremiah, one from the Gospel of John. First, in Jeremiah Jeremiah in the ninth chapter, verse 23, Jeremiah 9, 23, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And then in the 31st chapter of the book of Isaiah, a text we often reference, with good cause, I believe. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming. I'm waiting. I hear pages. By the way, that comforts me to hear pages. I can't hear you scroll. Really don't think I want to. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Please make note 
everyone in the new covenant people, they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And then finally, John's Gospel, the 17th chapter. John is the only one of the Gospels to record this prayer, often called the high priestly prayer. Jesus, last night before his death. John 17, 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This, my friends, is the word of our God. Let's pray. And now, Father, help us as only you can, that we see, hear, understand, rightly apply this, your word. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The year was about 1978. I was in the Lebanon Bible and Bookstore, a place that I frequented as much as I could and afford, and sometimes when I couldn't afford, I'd noticed a title that intrigued me. I looked at it, and it was a princely sum in that day, $3.95. Now, for a point of reference, the little church I pastored was paying me $100 a week. So you do the math. I think our rent was $150 a month. So that might give you just a little perspective. I finally broke down and bought it. The title of the book by a fellow I'd never heard of, J.I. Packer, Knowing God. Packer in the foreword had said, as clowns yearn to play Hamlet, so I have wanted to write a treatise on God. Okay, that seemed intriguing. And yet, with shepherding or trying to shepherd pastor a church, preaching two to three times a week, and trying to finish a college degree, I will admit it went on my shelf, and that's about all I could say for it until... I graduated, and in 1980, I finally got it down, and I started reading. I have rarely been so gripped by an author and by a topic. I considered bringing up my copy to show you <laughs> its condition. I literally have worn the thing out. It remains on my top ten, maybe even my top five. This interest in knowing God and all that means has been a driving factor in my own Christian life. I am constantly amazed 
at what I'll call the misperceptions of Christianity. Over and over I hear people say things like, well, I can't be good enough to be a Christian. By the way, the response to that is, you're right. You're exactly right. That's not an excuse, that's a reason. Oh, I don't want to give up, I'm having fun. I, I, I think it's all kind of boring. Or more blasphemously, sad. Well, the Lord and I have it all worked out. Like this is a negotiated settlement. Henry Scogel in his book, The Life of God and the Soul of Man, said, the soul of man is of a vigorous and active nature and hath in it a raging and unextinguishable thirst. I, I love that phrase. A raging and unextinguishable thirst thirst. We were made by God. We were made for God. We were made to be in fellowship with God. We were made to know God. We came from God. We exist by His will, and we find our end and purpose in Him. What is sad is there's so much God talk and so little knowledge of who God is. Piper in The Pleasures of God said it this way, I find the atmosphere of my own century far too dense with man and distant from the sweet sovereignty of God. Amen. For the Christian, the knowledge of God is the one great driving necessity, that raging, unextinguishable thirst when God is spoken of and rightly presented, the believer's heart finds this raging at least somewhat sated. It's an ongoing process. Sometimes it is through worship one would hope that that unextinguishable thirst could find some satisfaction. Sometimes it has been through reading others and what they have to say. I know my own life. Besides knowing God, Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion both Piper's desiring God and pleasures of God. Lately, Matthew Barrett's simply Trinity and none greater, as well as Puritan authors like Owen and Edwards, somewhat misplaced as a Puritan, but I still consider him of that genre. But there's been another little book that has had a powerful influence. By a fellow named A.W. Tozer. Born in 1897, died in 1963. And he wrote a little volume. And folks, if you want to keep yourself busy for a little while, in both thought and devotion, get a copy of The Knowledge of the Holy. The Knowledge of the Holy. Or, along with it, you could, The Pursuit of God. One brother said of Tozer, in this hour of all but universal darkness, one cheering gleam appears that there is an increasing number of persons whose religious lives are mocked by a growing hunger after God himself, and that for Tozer, Psalm 42, is the heart or deer pants after water brooks, so pants my soul after thee, O God. Now I connected three texts, and we'll 
take a moment doing snapshots of those as we go through this. But did you capture that last text from John 17 and Jesus' own definition of eternal life? My friends, far too often I fear that as Christians we give ourselves to a definition that is so underwhelming it's no wonder nobody pays attention to it. Eternal life is not merely existing forever. In fact, I will contend this. If eternal life is only unending existence, it's hardly worth bothering. Listen to Toza for a moment. Few of us have let our hearts gaze in wonder at the I am, the self-existent self, back of which no creature can think. Such thoughts are too painful for us. Perhaps some sincere but puzzled Christian may at this juncture wish to inquire about the practicality of such concepts as I'm trying to set forth here. What bearing does this have on my life, he may ask? What possible meaning can the self-existence of God have for me and others like me in a world such as this and in times such as this? To this I reply that because we are the handiwork of God who follows that all our problems and their solutions are theological. Some knowledge of what kind of God it is that operates the universe is indispensable to a sound philosophy of life and a sane outlook on the world scene. I, I think that's brilliant. Indispensable to a sound philosophy of life and a sane outlook on the world scene. Here in essence is the theme today. Eternal life is the knowledge of the one true God through Jesus Christ. That is eternal life. And that is what knowing God is. I say, well, you're going to talk about knowing God. Now you're talking about eternal life because knowing God is Jesus' own definition of eternal life. First consideration, our priority. There is no pursuit more important for us than to know God. This is our priority. Did you hear that? There is no pursuit for us more important than to know God. Jesus makes this clear. This is truly our salvation. This is eternal life, to know God. The canyon that opened between God and man in the Garden of Eden as a result of sin was that Adam and Eve no longer knew God as they had known Him. Their loss was this. Their knowledge had become tainted. Their suspicions had been aroused. Their autonomy had led to a disaster. Their connection to the tree of life had to be severed for the one who made that life meaningful they had rejected. They'd been drawn to seek his fellowship before. Now they are afraid of him. They run from him. To this day, we recognize that man has a horrible conflict and a death-inducing ignorance. We hate God and we are ignorant of God. 
And those two things are our damnation. Now I know people say, well, that's kind of hard, isn't it? I don't think I hate God. My friend, the Scripture tells you that if you have not submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ, you have enmity with God. Now, the frightening thing I recognize in our culture around us is people are not shying away from that verbalization any longer. They clearly say they hate God, at least the God that is revealed in the Scripture. Tozer helps us here when he says what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And low views of God destroy the gospel for all who hold them. And further, perverted notions about God soon rot the religion in which they appear. And the disaster, my friend, of this not being our priority is we make other things priority and the consequence is eternal and horribly destructive. Some years ago, a pastor in Arizona reported in Newsweek saying, and this is, quote, people today aren't asking about justification, sanctification, and similar questions. Hardly a rank liberal, he was nevertheless, he's nevertheless opted for a user-friendly religious approach that tries not to bore, bore people with, well, Christianity. My friend, we have been so wrapped up in human-centeredness, our felt needs. We're so wrapped up in our tips for living and relationships and success. Mike Horton puts it this way. We're children making mud pies. He's quoting here Lewis. We're making mud pies in the slum when we could enjoy a holiday at the sea. Our sin consists not simply in demanding that God make us happy but in being so oblivious to what real happiness is. We think we have all the answers, but we don't even know the right questions. Hear this. I know I'm going to talk, as I talk about this, some of you are going to say, well, he's, he's on one of those intellectual tears again. Intellectualism is so dry. And then I get emotional, and some of the rest of you say, he's, He's a little sentimental, isn't he? I would gladly be open to both accusations. Listen to Mike Horton here. The, both the dry intellectual and the wet sentimentalist are lazy. I like that. Let me explain. Both fail to love God well. You see, even if God did heal everybody and make everybody rich and fix everybody's lives... Self-centered religion would still be wrong. Not because people would be demanding, demanding too much, but because they would be settling for too little. God wants to open the heavens of His spiritual riches in Christ and give us our inheritance as His children. He wants to tell us who He is and how He has saved us from His wrath. And here we are asking Him if He has any candy in His pockets. Mm. My friends, there can be no health, there can be no spiritual health without doctrinal knowledge 
And I can come back to this. This matter of the mind being affected ultimately is what then causes the heart to be affected and then changes one's life. It begins with a change of thinking and a change of affection. And from the change of thinking and change of affection, behold, comes Christian living. For you begin to know what God is like and who God is and what God's will is. And you see the conflict in yourself and you loathe your rebellion and you love Him and so the affections change. This becomes the priority. We must pursue Him. Second consideration. This is not only our priority. Here is our obligation our principle, our properties, if you will. There's no pursuit which requires more of us than to know God. It requires me to learn about God and in that to know God. Now think of it this way. Suppose you have a friend who has fallen in love. And to talk with her, she appears to be staring through you as though you're not there. She's starry-eyed. A few weeks later, they run up, give you a hug, announce, and she says, I'm getting married. And you're surprised but happy, and you being, well, what's his name? What does he do for a living? Where does he live? And with a puzzled expression, she looks at you and says, well, I don't know. I don't want to know about him. I just want to know him. That's just dumb, Right? We, we create a division here that should not exist. When you're truly interested in the person, you want to know about them. In fact, we'll risk boring others to tears telling them about the one that we're so enamored of. Right? At least those of us that are extraordinarily verbal. Uh-oh, here they come again. I'm going to hear about how wonderful so-and-so is. It requires us to know about and to know. Never drive a wedge here. How can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? And Packer gives us a great instruction here. The rule for doing this is simple but demanding. It is that we turn each truth we learn about God into the matter of for meditation before God, which leads to prayer and praise to God. As you learn something new about God, you meditate and think about that before God, and it will lead you places in prayer and praise and repentance and adoration, and obedience. When I hear someone say, I don't want to know about God, I want to know God, it's apparent they really haven't thought this through. We learn about Him, and in learning about Him, we learn Him. But let me point out what I think really is key in this matter, of this pursuit, this obligation that requires so much of us. It not only requires that I know about God, learn about God, and know God Himself, it cannot be done 
to the extent that it should be done without the Christ of the new covenant. Jeremiah will look at a nation that's on the verge of destruction. Keep in mind, Jeremiah is prophesying at the end of the freedom and life of the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel has already been dragged into captivity. Jerusalem is still there. Judah is still there. But it's right at the end, and he's prophesying the destruction of his own people. And this was the great crisis for Jeremiah. This is one of the reasons he'll say at one point to the Lord, you deceived me, and I was deceived. Thanks a lot, Lord. I'm paraphrasing. It's great to be a prophet at this time. Everybody loves to hear from Jeremiah. You're doomed. Every last one of you doomed. Everybody's doomed. And he's not happy about it. You wonder about that, read Lamentations. Because during his lifetime, he'll see the destruction. But my friends, he will say, you remember the first one? Quit boasting about this, 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 and this. Boast, this is what the Lord says, that he understands and knows me. And when Jeremiah looks around, what's the last thing he sees? That there's anybody out there that knows and understands the Lord. And that's dark, isn't it? How would you like to be the guy that's called to tell an entire nation, doesn't matter what you do at this point, you're doomed. You're going to lose everything. You're going to lose your homes. You're going to lose your children. You're going to lose your parents. People you love are going to die, and you're going to be dragged out of here to a nation you've never seen. And you're going to live as survivors, indigents, in another nation. And you can't do a thing about it. But in the midst of that horrid prospect, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant they broke, though I was a husband to them. And what is the essence of that covenant? Yes, it includes glorious forgiveness. I will remember their sins and iniquities no more. But here was a consequence of this new covenant. They'll no longer say to those within the covenant community, know the Lord, because everybody in the covenant community will know Him. Why is this so important? Because the new covenant promises are anchored in the one who accomplishes for us as both sacrifice and priest what could never be accomplished otherwise. Luke 22, Jesus took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. He gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten saying, and what are his words? This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Hebrews 9. Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, 
now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. No, it was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He is both priest and sacrifice. The blood he brings is not the blood of another. The blood the great priest brings is his own blood. And he pours it out, if you will. His presence in heaven is the declaration, the new covenant. He will save his people from their sins. He will make it so they can know God. John can't seem to get over this. You read the Gospel of John. He's the only one who does it in this way. John 1, 16, from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. Now I say, well, yeah, there's people who saw God. Moses saw God. Moses saw the after effects of God. What about Isaiah? He had a vision. No one has seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Hear this phrase. He has made him known. Literally the word there, he has exegeted him. You want to know God, and that's the thrust of what we're driving at today, you have to know Jesus. You doubt that? John chapter 14. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And Philip says, John 14, 8, Lord, show us the Father. That'll be enough. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and still you don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Brothers and sisters, this is an essential. There is no knowledge of God any longer outside of Jesus Christ. We have to come through Him to truly know God. This is the promise of the new covenant. Now, for some of you say, okay, preacher, I'm swimming here. This is deep. I think I might be going under. What? Help. Okay, I'm going to help you. You're a sinner who needs a Savior. Turn to Him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be saved. Well, what about all this other stuff? All this other stuff flows out of that reality. When you know Him, when He saves you, you are made His, and the path of your life is changed to one you actually know God. This is our not only our priority, it is our obligation. And finally, this is our reward. No pursuit is more likely to change us than to know God. My friends, this is where I think we, we would gain such understanding about what many of us have witnessed in our lifetime. Because I'm old enough to have lived through the crusade eras. I'm old enough to have seen the stadiums filled with people. 
to have seen the revival meetings and evangelistic crusades in churches. And I, I've seen what appears to be aisles flooded with people ostensibly coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And then the disconnect. Because you can't find them. I'm not saying there haven't been many multitudes saved that way. I'm saying, my friends, we have watched as many of those who ostensibly prayed the prayer, nothing happened. There's short answers to why. Let me give you the larger answer to why. They didn't really come to know God. They didn't really come to Jesus Christ. There is no glorious motivation in them wrought by the miraculous power of the Spirit that they cannot be satisfied without a greater knowledge of Him through Christ Jesus. There's no hunger for righteousness. There's no thirst for spiritual reality. Friends, I don't want to make the gospel harder than it is or more complex, but oh, my friend, if we cannot have folks to some extent understand that hole in your life, that longing, that struggle is about a rebellion against a God who made you, and the only way back is through this Jesus Christ. And that that is not just a one-way ticket out of hell, but rather the change of a life to become a worshiper of God, a pursuer of God, somebody who actually truly knows God. And we have made our gospel small to the point of minuscule. I fear to the point of irrelevance. And further, I fear to the destruction of far too many lives. Dr. Packer summarizes this evidence of knowing God, and I would echo this. Those who know God have great energy for God. Those who know God have great thoughts of God. Those who know God have great boldness for God. And those who know God have great contentment in God. Now I know I've quoted from many others. I've quoted from others because there's so many people so much smarter than I and more spiritual. And I'd have you hear them. But can I draw it back to this? And it's something that Matt touched on in his testimony. And I, I want you to come with me for a minute to Philippians, the third chapter. And, and I think this is extraordinary. When you consider Saul of Tarsus, there was probably no better theological mind. There was likely nobody in all of Judaism who was any more adept with the text of the Old Testament. He understood what he believed, why he believed, everything about it. 
And yet, this man, who because of what he believed, takes it upon himself to do everything in his power to slaughter the church of the living God. He believed he was doing service to God by persecuting and putting to death Christians. If there were anybody on your conversion list, your hopeful conversion list in the first century of Christianity in the early church, I'm going to tell you up front, Saul was probably not on anybody's prayer list. But what does he say? Beginning Philippians 3, verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share sufferings becoming like Him in His death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You cannot understand the Apostle Paul if you do not understand this driving sentiment. Christian, let me ask you this. Is this what motivates you? Do you know God? Have you, through the Lord Jesus Christ, come to the place you can say, I know God? You say, why are you asking that? Okay, I'll ask it another way. Do you have eternal life? The only way that is true is you know Him. And the only way you know Him is to know Christ. This is our target, if you will. This is my exhortation. May this be our priority. May this be our pursuit. May this be the principle by which we live, that we know Him, that we reflect the realities of the new covenant, that our eternal life is more than simply the possibility, the prospect of existing forever. But rather it is that for this life and in truth for all of eternity we shall know Him. Lord, grant that. Amen. Father, may we truly know the Lord Jesus Christ and truly through Him know God. As we ponder in these coming weeks the attributes, the realities of who our God is, Lord, let us never lose sight that we know these things through this written word, but also this written word is ours because of Christ Jesus.
that we must see him. To know that in him grace and truth came. And to know that in him we can truly know God and be known by God. May we settle for nothing less. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing in response to him.